I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the book of Isaiah. Our text is Isaiah 31 through 35. I'm going to push us ahead in this lesson through the five chapters that contain our last two woes. We have overarching themes. Turn to God in unstable times. He is the Lord of history. He is your wisdom for this life. He is your hope for the future. He will lead the redeemed into a perfect kingdom led by a perfect king. God is trustworthy. Just as his promise of salvation from Assyria came true, so also his other promises for the future will come true. That future salvation will be experienced in part as history marches forward, but complete salvation requires a new kind of kingdom led by a new kind of king. That salvation will be completed only with the renewal of heaven and earth. Failure of human leadership over human kingdoms will continue to be a very real part of our present reality. We'll consider the last two of our six woes in this lesson. The first three woes establish theological principles. The second three woes show those principles at work in the concrete historical situation of threat from Assyria and alliance with Egypt. The first woe pairs with the fourth, the second with the fifth, and the third with the sixth. We can see the pairing of the woes in the details of the text, For example, the first woe and the fourth woes are the only two places in Isaiah that God's wrath comes as a storm of hail. Both woes include a scornful rejection of God's word. Uh, These are the only two woes that use the phrase taking refuge. And in both cases, that phrase points to false refuge in a foreign power. For the second and fifth woes, God's altar hearth appears in the second. Fire and furnace appear in the fifth. Reference to Mount Zion is only in these two woes. The imagery of hunger and thirst is common to both, and the unseeing eye in the second is matched by the seeing eye in the fifth. For the third and sixth woes, Lebanon is mentioned in both, as are the blind and the deaf, joy in the Lord, redemption, holiness, and spiritual transformation. Now these textual details that suggest the pairing motivate us to look closer at the themes in each pair of woes. And while certain themes overlap through all six, Moitier shows a principle supported by application in each pair. That pairing of themes is one way to summarize the many themes that weave together in this whole section. We get these two summaries from the first and fourth woes. First, the principle in the first woe, when God's people reject his word and covenant, destruction follows according to God's divine purposes. And then the application in the fourth woe, refuge is sought in Egypt, rejecting the Lord's word. Even so, God's immediate and ultimate purposes are accomplished. Then we get these two summaries from the second and fifth woes. First, the principle in the second woe, there is disaster and deliverance in God's divine purposes, but historical deliverance does not change people spiritually. Spiritual deliverance needs a further divine action which is already planned by God. And then the application in the fourth woe, divine deliverance scorns both Egypt's help and Assyria's enmity. Beyond lies the perfect kingdom with the true king and a transformed people. The pattern of history will be repeated, overthrow, and transformation. 
Finally, we get these two summaries from the third and sixth woes. First, the principle in the third woe, people may think to run the world without God, but he is the sovereign and his transforming purposes will work out spiritually, morally, and socially, fulfilling what began in Abraham and ending with the establishment of a truly renewed people. And then the application in the sixth woe, treacherous people may seem to rule, but divine sovereignty remains. The perfect kingdom, morally and socially and spiritually, will come. The enemy will finally be destroyed and the redeemed will gather in Zion. Let's consider now the text to see how Isaiah calls us to trust in God as our rock for the present and our sure hope for the future. The fifth woe starts off with a prologue of disaster and deliverance and ends with a corresponding epilogue of humiliation and blessing. In between, Isaiah issues a first call to return to God, followed by a description of a society led by the ideal king. Then Isaiah issues a second call to return to God, followed by a description of a society transformed by the Spirit. We start with God's deliverance, followed by disaster. These verses place us in the historic context of the Assyrian threat, and failed Egyptian alliance. Isaiah 31, 1-5. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and does not retract his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers of iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand, and he who helps will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and all of them will come to an end together. For thus says the Lord to me, as the lion growls, or the young lion over his prey, against which a band of shepherds is called out, and he will not be terrified at their voice, nor disturbed at their noise, so will the Lord of hosts come down to wage war on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like flying birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it, pass over and rescue it. This woe starts very similarly to the fourth woe. There it was, woe to those who make an alliance, but not of my spirit. Here it is, woe to those who trust in chariots, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel. Ground your decisions in the will of God. Seek him first. The false security of Egypt will be quickly revealed. He who helps will stumble, that's Egypt, and he who is helped will fall, that's Judah. And Though Judah experiences severe consequences in the Assyrian invasion, God has decided to rescue them, but only after the false security of Egypt is removed. Isaiah imagined for us here a mixed metaphor of lions and birds of prey. Coming down to wage war on Mount Zion, God is like a lion standing over his prey. Assyria, marching up to Jerusalem, is like a band of shepherds trying to scare the lion off. God is not disturbed at their noise. They are just noise to him. The image is scary, both for Assyria and for Jerusalem. The Assyrians are shepherds facing a lion Jerusalem is the prey over which the lion stands. That's a powerful image of protectiveness. Try to pull a lamb shank out of a lion's mouth. 
It's also disconcerting if you're the lamb. Verse 5 switches to the image of birds of prey hovering over the city. Isaiah follows the image with a quick succession of verbs. The Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem, protect, deliver, pass over, rescue. I'm reminded again of Deuteronomy 32, 11, where God is pictured as an eagle protectively hovering over baby birds in a nest. In the next section, disaster and deliverance is followed by a call to repentance. Isaiah 31, 6 to 9, return to him from whom you have deeply defected, O sons of Israel. For in that day, every man will cast away his silver idols and his gold idols, which your sinful hands have made for you as a sin. And the Assyrian will fall by the sword, not of man, and a sword, not of man, will devour him. So he will not escape the sword, and his young men will become forced laborers. His rock will pass away because of panic, and his princes will be terrified at the standard, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. You notice that reference to standard. This is that image of God as the king on the battlefield. The sons of Israel here is not a reference to Israel, the northern kingdom. That kingdom has already been destroyed and exiled. The people of Israel from the days of old carry on in Judah. The Judeans are the sons of Israel. Isaiah is calling these men to return. He charges them with deep defection from God. In that day is a phrase that often refers to the end times. I don't see that here. Assyria is mentioned by name. The passage fits with the contemporary threat. In that day of Assyria surrounding Jerusalem and God defeating Assyria. That's the day. Back in 220, Isaiah wrote, In that day, men will cast away to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold. They cast away their idols in time of war to protect the precious metals of the statues. That's what the idols are reduced to. They're only objects. They can't protect or save, or bless, or fulfill. Here, the casting off of idols could have the same idea of protecting silver and gold from invaders, but back in the last woe, in 30, 21 to 22, walking with God required a turning from false gods, a destruction of graven images. I think here Isaiah predicts the throwing off of idols as an act of repentance that happens just before God saves Judah. You know, that's the moment that Hezekiah is going to believe or in response to God having saved, you know, then men will cast off their idols because they will see the truth of who God is. Isaiah predicts that salvation from Assyria will be a God thing. A sword not of man will devour him. His rock, his princes fail. Whatever the Assyria soldier hopes in, whether it's his king or his God or the might of his army, that rock will fail. We see here the pairing of the second and fifth woes with the theme of Ariel or altar hearth picked up again through the language of fire and furnace. The theme is not limited to the pairing of the second and fifth woes. God's consuming or burning anger against Assyria occurs in each of our last three woes. God's deliverance is not based on the goodness of Judah, but on his own decision to set apart Jerusalem as holy and to punish the Assyrian army for its wickedness. He is the Lord whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Assyria will be sacrificed on the altar of God. Isaiah follows this call to return to God with the description of a righteous king ruling over a new society. Isaiah 32, 1-8, Behold, a king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. Each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm, 
like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded, and the ears who hear will listen. The mind of the hasty will discern the truth, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. That's a reversal of the spiritual blindness and deafness that exists in the society of Judah in Isaiah's day. Judeans in the future will have been transformed. The hasty mind will discern truth. The stammerer will speak clearly. No longer will the fool be called noble or the rogue be spoken of as generous. For a fool speaks nonsense and his heart inclines towards wickedness to practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord, to keep the hungry person unsatisfied and to withhold drink from the thirsty. As for a rogue, his weapons are evil. He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander, even though the needy one speaks what is right. But the noble man devises noble plans, and by noble plans he stands. Judah's men of prestige are fools and rogues. That's not a hard image to picture. We think of so many men and women of business or, or in politics, the words too often apply. The people of this new society will see through the nonsense and wicked schemes of such men. Imagine a place where the rogue and fool are never allowed to lead, but instead discerning members of society follow the nobleman and are attracted to him by the nobility of his plans. In the next section, Isaiah again challenges the people of Judah to return to God. This time he addresses the women, calling them complacent daughters. The effect of addressing both men and women is to include the whole of wayward society, not just men, not just women, everyone. This is Isaiah 32, 9-14. Rise up, you women who are at ease, and hear my voice. You complacent daughters, give ear to my word. Within a year and a few days, you will be troubled, O complacent daughters, for the vintage is ended, and the fruit gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent daughters. Strip, undress, and put sackcloth on your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the land of my people, in which thorns and briars shall come up. Yea, for all the joyful houses and for the jubilant city, because the palace has been abandoned, the populated city forsaken, hill and watchtower have become caves forever, a delight for wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks. The call to hear contrasts the new society described in the earlier verses. The men and women of present-day Judah have not given ear to God's word. They do not listen. They do not obey. The destruction described here initially refers to the Assyrian invasion. The complacent daughters of Judah will put sackcloth around their waist and beat their breasts in memory of fields full of harvest and vines full of fruit that are all destroyed. This will happen in a year and a few days, it says. Since Sennacherib invades in 701 BC, the dating of this prophecy is a year and a few days earlier, sometime in 702 BC. And yet, even with that concrete identification, the devastation seems on a wider scale than the invasion by Assyria, which was eventually pushed back. They didn't take Jerusalem. The palace was not abandoned. Here, thorns and briars come up in the fields. The palace and city are forsaken to become a delight of wild donkeys and pastured flocks. 
and that could be exaggerated imagery about the invasion of Assyria, or Isaiah has turned his vision ahead to end-time events, seeing the invasion of Syria as foreshadowing the more complete future downfall of the city of man. Desolation sits on the city until a new society is formed. And that new society is again briefly described in our next section, just as the earlier call for repentance was followed by a description of a new society led by a new king, this second call to repentance is followed by a new society inaugurated through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Let me go back to verse 14 because verse 15 makes sense when you read the two together. Because the palace has been abandoned, the populated city forsaken, hill and watchtower have become caves forever, a delight for wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered as a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteous will abide in the fertile field, and the work of righteousness will be peace, and the service of righteousness, quietness, and confidence forever. Then my people will live in a peaceful habitation, and in secure dwellings, and in undisturbed resting places." Our fifth woe ends with a two-verse epilogue that points again to the dual theme of disaster and deliverance, briefly. And it will hail when the forest comes down and the city will be utterly laid low. How blessed will you be, you who sow beside all waters, who let out freely the ox and the donkey. That's recapping. There, There was humiliation followed by blessing for the faithful. Now the final woe. This woe is our longest, covering three chapters. The chapters are short, though. The total length of all three is only 51 verses. Simply put, the woe has an A-B-A-B-A pattern, moving from deliverance to judgment to deliverance to judgment to deliverance. The first deliverance-judgment pair concerns Judah and is rooted historically in the present Assyrian threat. The second deliverance judgment pair looks ahead to end times and takes on a universal scope. And then the final section of deliverance pictures a pilgrimage to Zion. We begin with the salvation of Zion. Unlike the first five woes, this one is not directed towards Israel or Judah, but towards their adversary. I'll start with just the first verse, 33.1. Woe to you, O destroyer, while you were not destroyed and he who is treacherous while others did not deal treacherously with him. As soon as you are finished destroying, you will be destroyed. As soon as you cease to deal treacherously, others did deal treacherously with you. That's basically saying what you have done, it wasn't done to you, but you've done it now, and so it's going to come back on your head. You wanted to be a destroyer, you're going to be destroyed. I'm assuming the destroyer is Assyria, And this is the deliverance of Jerusalem from Assyria, though the lack of direct reference foreshadows kind of ultimate deliverance. Verses 2 to 6 are a little hard to pin down. First, the speech is directed to God, and then it's about God. Also, in one verse, the speaker switches from first-person plural to third-person plural and back again to first-person plural. Let's see if you can pick that up. O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their strength every morning, our salvation also in the time of distress. At the sound of the tumult, peoples flee. At the lifting up of yourself, nations disperse. 
Your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts rushing about, men rush about on it. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. We can make sense of the shifts in the text if we assume Isaiah is speaking in the presence of Judean believers. That would explain how he can speak both of we and of them, including himself in one moment as one of the faithful, or in another moment focusing his remarks on those present other than himself. So he can switch from we to they. And by assuming his speech is a prayer, we can explain why he first speaks to God and then speaks about God. You know, we kind of do both things when we pray. Try to get a picture in mind of Isaiah praying while I read the text again. Imagine a scene maybe in the temple where he is gathered with a group of faithful believers, including the repentant Hezekiah. Imagine Isaiah praying this. O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their strength every morning. Our salvation also in the time of distress. At the sound of the tumult, peoples flee. At the lifting up of yourself, nations disperse. Your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts rushing about, men rush about on it. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. And he will be the stability of your times. A wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. In a time of great instability, Isaiah declares in this prayer to the faithful listeners, the Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He will be the stability of your times. And Isaiah reminds them of a verse that's mentioned in Proverbs, mentioned in Job, mentioned in Ecclesiastes. It is the theme of wisdom literature. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You have forgotten this. Isaiah just puts his little twist on it. He says, A wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. The fear of the Lord is is the treasure of the Lord that he offers to you because it is to you wisdom and knowledge and salvation. When things are unstable and you don't know what to do, if you will go to the Lord... And follow him, his wisdom, his presence, his promises become for you stability. The prayer for deliverance is followed by a declaration of judgment against the peoples who have caused suffering in Judah. God did not prevent Assyria, God did not prevent Assyria from invading, but he will avenge himself on Assyria. Isaiah 33, 7-9 Behold, their brave men cry in the streets. The ambassadors of peace weep bitterly. The highways are desolate. The traveler has ceased. He has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He has no regard for man. The land mourns and pines away. Lebanon is shamed and withers. Sharon is like a desert plain. And Bashan and Carmel lose their foliage. Invasion has happened. Jerusalem is surrounded. Brave men cry in the streets. That word brave men is literally aerialites. They are the the men of 
Ariel. They are the Jerusalemites. They are the people of the altar hearth. Ambassadors of peace are sent by Hezekiah to pay off Sennacherib. Sennacherib accepts the tribute, but decides to destroy Jerusalem anyway. The ambassadors of peace weep bitterly. Then God steps in. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will be lifted up. You have conceived chaff. You you will give birth to stubble. My breath will consume you like a fire. The peoples will be burned to lime like cut thorns which are burned in the fire. The text then shifts to deliverance in verse 13. The scope is universal. Those who are far away are called to hear what God has done, and those who are near are called to acknowledge God's might. I'm reminded of Paul's language in Ephesians 2, 13 and 17, where believing Gentiles are those who are far away and believing Jews are those who are near. The two are made one in Jesus Christ. I wonder if Paul got that language from here. We begin with 33, 13 to 17. You who are far away, hear what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity. He who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe. He who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. He will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will behold a far distant land. God has called everyone, those who are far off and those who are near. They are to see what has happened in Jerusalem. Sinners are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. They are saying, who among us can live with the consuming fire? They mean the consuming fire of God's wrath. God's answer, the righteous can. Those who speak with sincerity and reject unjust gain, who shut their eyes from looking at evil. The problem that none can actually be righteous in the eyes of God is not addressed here. What's necessary is righteousness. And those who are righteous are the ones who are going to live on the hill of the Lord. God accepts those whose desire is to live according to the moral vision of his nature. How God handles the sin of the faithful will be addressed in the next major section of Isaiah, the book of the servant. For now it is enough to know that the righteous will see the king in his beauty. The terror of the sinner is removed in verse 18. You will be able to meditate on terror and realize that there is no invading army to fear. You don't have to be afraid. The majestic one makes you secure in the kingdom of Zion. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is he who counts? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? You will no longer see a fierce people, a people of unintelligible speech, which no one comprehends, of a stammering tongue, which no one understands. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts, Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an undisturbed habitation, a tent which will not be folded. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its cords be torn apart. But there the majestic one, the Lord, will be for us a place of rivers and wide canals, on which no boat with oars will go, and on which no mighty ship will pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. God will save Judah from foreign invaders both on land and on water. 
on which no boat with oars will go and on which no mighty ship will pass. He is assuring us that the flowing rivers and wide canals of God's fertile kingdom will not be invaded by military vessels. Earth and sea are under his domain. The word Lord in verse 22 is Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Yahweh is our judge. Yahweh is our lawgiver. Yahweh is our king. He will save us. As judge, he determines who has kept faith, who has loved God, and who has loved his neighbor. As lawgiver, he communicates civil laws for ordering society and higher laws for living righteously. As king, he protects us and provides for our well-being. He will save us. Oswald considers this verse 22 to be the climax of chapters 28 to 33. He writes, throughout, the issue has been, can we trust God to save us? Here, however, the alternative is expressed for the people by the prophet. Yes, he is our king, and he alone will save us. This proclamation of universal deliverance ends with an odd image of a crippled boat that cannot spread out its sail or move. The ship stalls in the water, and so it becomes prey to any military vessel. Your tackle hangs slack. It cannot hold the base of its mast firmly, nor spread out the sail. Then the prey of an abundant spoil will be divided. The lame will take the plunder, and no resident will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. There's a surprising turn in the verse. Surprisingly, the prey takes the spoil and the lame the plunder. Isaiah is reminding his listeners, it's not by your strength that you have gained treasure. You did not defeat Assyria. You were like a boat dead in the water. Your inheritance comes from the mighty arm of God. That's true of this historic moment. That's true of your future salvation. You are the ineffective ship that limps along. You cannot save yourself. And yet you are saved. The last verse points towards the deliverance that Judah needs. They did need salvation from the army of Assyria, but what then? What then? They still need a greater deliverance from sickness and death and their own sinful hearts. In the new Zion, no resident will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Again, Isaiah does not explain how they can be forgiven until the book of the servant, but this is the vision that somehow we will live in this new society as a forgiven people, as righteous. Paired with this universal proclamation of salvation, chapter 34 gives us a universal proclamation of judgment. I'll read the whole chapter to let the weight of the proclamation sink in. This is the destruction of the city of man, the great battle at the end of the age. The universal proclamation announces to everyone the consequence of rebelling against God, our creator and king. Isaiah 34, 1-17. Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear, and the world and all that springs from it. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations, and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them, given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out, and their corpses will give off their stench, and the mountains will be drenched with their blood, and all the host of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled back like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away, 
as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend from judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen will also fall with them and young bulls with strong ones. Thus their land will be soaked with blood and their dust become greasy with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its streams will be turned into pitch and its loose earth into brimstone and its land will become burning pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever. From generation to generation it will be desolate. None will pass through it forever and ever. But pelican and hedgehog will possess it and owl and raven will dwell in it, and he will stretch over it the line of desolation and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there whom they may proclaim king, and all its princes will be nothing. Thorns will come up in its fortified towers, nettles and thistles in its fortified cities. It will also be a haunt of jackals and an abode of ostriches. The desert creatures will meet with the wolves, and the hairy goat also will cry to its kind. Yes, the night monster will settle there and will find herself a resting place. The tree snake will make its nest and lay eggs there, and it will hatch and gather them under its protection. Yes, the hawks will be gathered there, every one with its kind. Seek from the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these will be missing. None will lack its mate. For his mouth has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them, and his hand has divided it to them by line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they will dwell in it. This is the final battle, the result of the final battle. Humanity is gone. The wild animals possess the land. The judgment is on the land of all who take up arms against Zion. It will be laid waste, full of brimstone and burning pitch. It sounds like Mordor. And so Isaiah draws again on this theme of the desolate city turned into wilderness. It's the apocalyptic vision of a Moscow or Rome or New York. Husk of buildings, trash-littered streets, briars and thorns growing up out of broken pavement, animals of the desert night prowling through the ruins. The enemies of God are pictured as sacrifice on the altar. The sword of God is the priest's tool used for butchering animals. That's why it's sated with fat. And that's one of the symbols that sacrifice communicates to us. The wages of sin is death. It's not the animal that needs to die. The animal dies to symbolize the curse a human being deserves for wicked rebellion against the goodness of God. That sacrifice is symbolic. Here it's not symbolic. Here the enemies of Zion pay the price for their rebellion against God. The ruin engulfs more than opposing kingdoms. All the host of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up as a scroll. Sometimes host of heaven means angels. I think here it means the moon and the stars in the night. The image is dark and terrifying. And yet at the same time, it is also an end of sin and injustice and oppression and death. It is the night before the new day. That's how Horatio Spafford understood it when he wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, 
The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend a song in the night, O my soul. And so Isaiah takes us from the night of universal judgment to a new day. The final section of this woe pictures the redeemed making pilgrimage through a renewed world to Zion. Isaiah 35, 1-10. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The eyes of the blind open, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame leap and the mute shout for joy. The people of God have been transformed. No longer spiritually blind and deaf and lame and mute, as the people of Judah have been described, God has made us to see. He has set our tongues loose to speak truth freely. We will encounter this language again later in the servant songs. Hear the faithful walk on a highway of holiness as the desolate land is transformed. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up upon it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. With everlasting joy upon their heads, they will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. These last verses bring to mind another hymn I remember singing at church camp in the early 80s. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return, and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. I don't think I've sung that in 40 years. It's always sounded pretty Christian to me. I don't imagine I ever knew it was written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And I I think in later years, I assumed it was about the return from Babylon. And that's not surprising because we're going to get some of that imagery in our next section, starting in chapter 40. But here Zion is the new Zion. It's the redeemed city. It's, It's the new heaven and the new earth. And and our joy will be everlasting, and sorrow and sighing will be gone. We who were far off from the people of Judah have been invited to join in this pilgrimage to the holy city. Let's conclude with the passage Oswald called the climax of the whole section, and with the prayer Isaiah prayed. The climax, Isaiah thirty three twenty two, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. And the prayer, Isaiah 33, 2, 5, and 6. O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be our strength every morning. 
our salvation also in the time of distress. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of our times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Lord God, you are our stability in unstable times. You are our wisdom, knowledge, and salvation. You are our treasure. Help us to hold on to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like the overview chart or other resources that go with our study of Isaiah, then check out our resource page at observetheword.com. You can also find there our previous series on the book of Romans, the Pentateuch, the Gospel of John, and the book of Acts.